Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the Starline by actor, comedian, pre-med student, author, Food Network host, and shy foodie. You've seen him in Cobra Kai, kicking it and raid the fridge. His latest project is Undercooked, how I let food become my life navigator, and how maybe that's a dumb way to live. We welcome Dan Adute. Thank you, Sean, for having me. And I wanted to thank my parents for giving you that introduction. And I know that my parents gave you that because you threw pre-med in there. So they're trolling me. Dan, let's go beyond the mic. This is part memoir, part comedy, part life. Why was this so important to write? I'm going to start off by saying Undercooked was never a plan that I had. This book came out of a very random uh, series of events that came together. Uh, one was I did a podcast episode uh, of Steve Ranella's podcast, Meat Eater, and I told some funny hunting stories. My manager listened to it, and she said, why don't you turn these stories into a movie? So I started to write a movie. It sucked. She was like, why don't you just start writing about why you love food so much? Because you're absolutely obsessed with food. And so I started writing these you know, essays about my relationship to food. And she was like, these are really good, but they could be, they feel more like chapters of a book. So she was like, do you have any more chapters in you? I was like, absolutely, I do. And so I kind of realized, oh, I have a book in me without even ever wanting to be an author or knowing that I, <laughs> that I had that in me. You know, very quickly, those chapters were sent around and Crown Publishing was interested. And, and Suddenly, not only was I writing a book, but I had to write a book because I was getting paid for it. <laughs> they get so persnickety when you take the advance. Oh, yes, they do. I'll tell you, it is. Uh, it's funny. I, I actually had. So, again, I'm not a writer uh, in the traditional sense. Like I write for TV and stuff like that, but I've never written a book. But I was writing for like eight months and I thought I was basically done just because it felt like, yeah, I think I think I wrote a book. I think that's a book's worth that I wrote. And I remember asking my agent and the book was due in a month and a half. And I asked my agent, I was like, Hey, I think I'm done, but is there like an official amount? Like how long is this supposed to, and she goes, you're contractually obligated to 60,000 words. And I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. Let me, you know, let me start an Excel spreadsheet, add up the word counts. (laughs) And I add them up. And I was at 35,000 words. <laughs> that month and a half must have been really hell. That month and a half was nuts. And I am a person who I, it's funny to say this because I was late to our podcast today, but I'm a person who's religious about deadlines and being on time, <laughs> even though I was 10 minutes late to our podcast today. But yeah, so I, it was the craziest month and a half of my life. You've been so accomplished as a comedian, actor, and host. But to you, Dan, as the middle child, that was considered what to your parents? Um, to my parents, I think I was considered... I think I was considered talented to my parents. And the reason is because I had to be talented to stick out uh, from my older brother and my younger brother. I wasn't particularly handsome. Uh, you know, I wasn't particularly athletic, but I I got really good at learning about food. I got really good at instruments. I got really good at learning languages. And so I would do a lot of these things that I you know, I kind of became a a you know, master of none basically. Uh, but but I I was a jack of all trades. Like I knew how to do a little bit of everything, just whatever I could do to eke out some attention from 
from uh, my older brother and my younger brother. So how did your brother stand apart from you? My older brother was, you know, the firstborn. So obviously there's a certain amount of gravitas that comes with that. And he was also a sort of semi-professional tennis player. He was number one on the tennis team in high school and in college. So he was like a thoughtful jock though. Like he was a nice, he was like a Marcus Aurelius type. You know, he was a, he was a good person who was also like a hot shot on, you know, in sports. And then my younger brother was just like, you know, cute younger brother. He was taller than all of us. He was very handsome, got all the girls, had his first kiss when he was in sixth grade. I think I'm still waiting to have my first kiss. And, you know, he basically had that, that natural younger brother cuteness. So, and I was like a chubby short kid. So I had to make up for it in other ways. Could you cook your mom's recipes better than they can? It wasn't even that back then. It was more that I showed more of an appreciation for food than they did. And partly that was because my dad was a huge foodie. He went to school in Europe and, you know, had all these European trappings when it came to food. So I saw that as my in. I started to really get finicky about food and understand food. And so having that relationship with my dad of being able to relate to food in a way that only he and I could was that was my ticket out of, uh, you know, nebulous middle child, the forgotten one syndrome. But you are the chosen one. Yeah. Dan Adut, his book is Undercooked, How I Let Food Become My Life Navigator. And oh, maybe that's a dumb way to live. Joins us beyond the mic for The Rocking Eight. All this is, Dan, is eight random questions. You've done it before. Answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. There is no pressure. I hate that you do this, <laughs> just so that you know. My podcast guests, they get all their questions beforehand. So they can pretend like they're pulling it out of their ass, but they know damn well what their earliest food memory was. They know what their death row meal was. They know, uh, you know, what their desert island food is. They know what their restaurant pet peeve is. But they play this fun game where they, the, where it's like they pretend like I'm asking it for the first time. Like, oh, what's my death row meal? Great question. Hmm. Well, if I had to pull something out of my ass, it would be first course would be and then they do like a 10 course meal that they pull out of their ass that they've been working on. So I just want the listeners to know this is completely being pulled out of my ass authentically. Your podcast Green Eggs and Dan is on a meal prep variety kick. What's the one food you have problems adding to your routine? The one food I have problems adding to my routine. There's a couple. There's two main things. One is raw clams. I can't do raw clams, really. And the other one is pickled herring. Those are my two can't stand things. And uh, the raw clams comes from that was my first bite of shellfish ever was a raw clam, which is the worst first bite of shellfish that anyone can have. You want calamari. You want a fried popcorn shrimp. Raw clam is disgusting, whether it's your first or your last shellfish. Uh, those are the, I, I, I have no desire to bring those into, into my food lexicon. I know you have a broken ankle, but when you're on the road, how do you eat? Are you disciplined or you eat whatever you can find? I am not disciplined. I'm very, but I am very researched. What I will do is I will go on a tear researching what the best place is to eat in that neighborhood. And I will try to get my hands on that. Um, for example, I was in Sacramento a couple of weeks ago for a show in Roseville, which is outside of Sacramento. 
And I found there's a Michelin rated taco joint in this random town of Roseville. Went there, had a delightful meal. And, you know, it's little things like that that make being on the road fun. Which is better, a Michelin-starred restaurant on your favorite greasy spoon on the island? Well, look, the thing that I loved about this place is that it was a Michelin, it was a Michelin-starred greasy spoon, which is so cool. I mean, that to me is the best. That's, the, that's where I like to live. I swear he did not know these questions beforehand, <laughs> folks. You gave away copies of your book to people who had the worst holiday gift. What was your worst holiday gift ever received? The worst holiday gift I ever got. I never get gifts. I never get any gifts. So I don't think that there is a worst holiday gift I can get because anything I get is, is it goes in the plus category. Okay. I don't know what it is. People think that grown men don't want to get gifts. I want gifts. Give me goddamn gifts. And I don't care. And I'm not going to come on your podcast, Sean, and start you know, premeditatively uh, shaming people for their attempts to get me gifts. Get me whatever you want. I will be so happy to accept it, no matter what it is. Okay? Is it a a decorative plate with a swastika on it? A for effort. Okay? (laughs) You did it. You didn't hit the bullseye, but you you gave it something. You gave it a shot. What's the one cooking item you have way too many of? I have way too many uh, mortar and pestles, which is to say I have two. <laughs> There's no reason to have more than two mortar and pestles. Um, although, in my defense, I have one for everything, and then I have one just for saffron. That's acceptable. Yeah, because saffron is a very subtle flavor, and you don't want other things to get in on that. Have you ever ate anything you dropped on the floor? Yeah, always. In fact... <laughs> Who hasn't? This was, I was I was grilling fish yesterday, and I have this new little hibachi. It's a new little yakitori uh, grill that I have that I love. And I I was grilling the fish on top of these coals with no grate, and the wood stick that had the fish in it broke, and the fish just fell right onto the coals. And I took it out, and it was full of ash. I mean, it was bathed in ash. And guess what? That ash was delicious. What's the last meal you cooked for someone else? Not you, someone else. My last meal I cooked for someone else other than me was uh, I made, I had these kidney beans that I had made from scratch. I took the beans and mixed them with sauerkraut, which I got from Noah Galutin's cookbook, uh, which is a fun cookbook called The Don't Panic Pantry. So... It was sauerkraut and it was kidney beans and it was some Worcestershire sauce and a fried egg on top. And oh, also I, I put I mixed in a handful of arugula into the beans, too. So it was like a bean stir fry with arugula and sauerkraut topped with a fried egg. Back in September, there was a word about a Muslim-American comedy in the works. Where does that stand today? ABC decided not to move forward with it. Uh, They decided not to move forward with any comedies, though, so it's not that big of a deal. Um, It's a very weird, strange time right now to be trying to sell a TV show. But I do, that script came out so good that I am confident that it will find a home somewhere and it's going to find a nice home somewhere. So... Uh, it is written. It is beautiful. It's called. It's about my buddy who is an orthopedic surgeon. His name is Mo, and his name is Mohanad in real life. 
And the name of the show is Mo Problems. So I think it's going to be great. Dan Adu joins us beyond the mic for the back half. Currently, Riders are striking. What are your thoughts on this and how does it affect you? Well, first of all, I want to say a lot of people like to poo-poo on AI. Let me tell you one way to use it that is amazing, which is when you want to complain to write a complaint to the air to the airline and you don't want to sit there and write the goddamn thing out. Oh, boy, does chat GPT come in handy then? I literally have sent like 10 letters to Delta. What? <laughs> that are just like, I mean, it's great because I don't want to sit there and spend my brain power on uh, the, the flight left a little late and my baggage didn't. And so I just, all I write is, hey, chat GTP, say that my baggage was late and it ruined my plans for that evening and that I'd like some money back. And they spit out 10 paragraphs of garbage that, I send to Delta and I get, uh, you know, I'll get some uh, refunds, uh, some money back. But with regards to the writer's strike, I am in the Writers Guild. I'm a huge supporter of striking right now. Uh, Yes, the AI stuff is a big deal, um, but also uh, the streaming residuals and the pay, the payments that writers get on, on streaming shows is just like, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous to the point where, basically like the lowest level writer on an ABC on like a network show is going to get paid more than a staff writer on Bridgerton or Cobra Kai or like the highest rated shows that are on streaming. Yeah. It's just that way now because it started out like that and they carved out nice contracts for themselves. Anyway, I think that, I think that writers have writers writing is the fucking worst job ever. It's the hardest job in the world. And and it's like, if you're doing it and not getting paid well, uh, it ultimately it makes it so, uh, you, you just get full of um, resentment that you're putting in all this time and all this brain power and you're making all this money for the studio. I mean, just ungodly amounts of money. Um, the writers, in my opinion, should be getting paid more than anyone else. Um, actors are just fucking puppets. Let's be honest. They're just reading words that are written by uh, by someone. So, uh, yeah, no, I think uh, I, I definitely uh, have been out on the pickup lines and I'm a big supporter of the strike. How did writing free your soul? You know, it, writing fills my soul in that it is the one, it was the one part of my, man, I'm going to sound so pretentious right now, but it was like the one part of my artistic self that was lacking. Like I had a lot of outlets for everything. Like stand up is a great outlet for, you know, tragedy plus time. And acting is a fantastic outlet just to play make believe. But I didn't have like a serious outlet for serious stuff. And I think writing for me is, you know, while stand up, I feel like is you take the serious stuff and you turn it into jokes. And, you know, it'll be 10% serious, 90% joke books for me are the other way around. It's 90% serious, 10% joke. And I think that that is a very, very cool outlet for me to have. Uh, So it absolutely more than anything fills my soul. The other stuff, you know, will feed my ego and make me happy and stuff like that. But this stuff is definitely fills my soul. Dan, how did your brother's death change you as a man and as a brother? Um, my brother's death changed everything about my life because it made me realize 
that life is short and I better do what I want to do. Right. So I was going to be a doctor. I decided not to, I decided to go into comedy. And I also, it also put me on this kind of path of rebellion where I didn't want to accept his death. I didn't want to accept how it took him away from me and took my parents away from me for a while because, you know, they became zombies of themselves uh, after my brother died, rightfully so. But, you know, I was a little bit of a petulant 16 year old and I couldn't accept it. And so I went looking for other things to fill that hole and food and my relationship to food was one of those things. Mind you, in hindsight, you know, it was obviously the wrong thing to do for my healing or for my psyche, but it did give me a, it did, it, it is my passion in life and it still is. And it is something that I have, you know, probably the most fun thinking about and talking about. So, you know, it could have been worse is what I'm saying. I, I could have been, I didn't, I didn't go to drugs or alcohol <laughs> and stuff like that. So it definitely, my brother's death definitely did, uh, you know, help me find the man, you know, find, find out who I am today, you know, turn me into the man that I am today. Talk about the travel you did and the food you love. I would travel. A lot of times it was based off of that kind of first question you were asking me, uh, which is like when I'm on the road, what do I do? And, and food is a huge part of me being on the road. I, I was the highest booked college comedian in the country for three years. And I was doing like 165 shows a year. So I'd be going to all these little towns and I'd be able to explore the local food scene. And so, you know, I became like this kind of one man Guy Fieri, just, you know, without cameras or anything, just going from place to place to place and and feeding my stomach and feeding my brain with knowledge of, of these things. And and then, you know, once I started to do well in comedy and I had some more money, I started to do that in outside of the country. I'd go to Europe. I'd go to South America. I'd go you know, to Asia and go on food adventures there. So it just became a huge, huge part of my life. Um, and again, I love, I love that it is. And I love that it was where you get into trouble is when that's all that defines you. And I think that that is a, I'm seeing that is a, uh, it's a trap. A lot of people are falling into now, especially since everyone has a smartphone and everyone has an Instagram account and uh, everyone is suddenly a, a food blogger and I feel like it takes all the enjoyment out of food and it just makes it all about likes and it makes it all about your virtual identity. So when you're eating at a restaurant, what kind of foodie are you? The, I've got to take a photo eater to send it back because it's slightly over or underdone or the, I'd like to see your manager foodie. I'm definitely not the third one. Uh, I am the, probably the first one a little bit. However, uh, I don't, I'm not the person who takes the pictures with flash. Like the people who take the pictures of their food with flash, they need to die a slow, painful death. They're ruining vibes of restaurants for all of us. And in fact, whether they know it or not, they're ruining vibes because a lot of chefs now, a lot of restaurants are, are just bringing the lighting up in their restaurants so that their food is more photographable so that it goes viral on Instagram or TikTok more. I mean, it's a, it's an awful vile thing. Mind you, I will take a picture here and there of a dish. <laughs> I'm not above that. And I'm also 100% the person who will return food if it's prepared wrong. 
I won't return a dish if I just don't like the dish, but it was prepared correctly. But if something's wrong, you should, anyone should feel the, you know, the, the, the God given right to get what they wanted to get what they paid for. Why is storytelling so important for you? I don't know. I've never thought about that, which is crazy because I never thought that that's kind of all I do. Um, I, I love, I, I, it's, it's going to be so basic as to just say, I love telling stories. I love when something weird happens to me and I get to spin this tale of, you're not going to believe what happened to me. You know, that moment when Ralph Macchio stiffed me for the bill at a restaurant, like I, I, I couldn't like, after that happened, I was just, I, I was so giddy to be able to form that into a story, which is, you know, one of my favorite stories now and probably going to be a chapter in my next book. I mean, I just love having, uh, being an observer of the world and, and whatever comes at me, uh, being able to give it to other people and, and see the satisfaction on their face from it. I mean, there's nothing to me that's, that's more fun. Why that is, or what's the pathology behind that? I'm not really sure. Uh, it must be, I mean, the cynical side will just be like, Oh, you just want to get attention. But I do love, I do love making people, uh, excited to hear a story. Dan, who influenced you in comedy growing up? The comedians who influenced me were probably mostly the SNL class that I came up with. Right. So like Chris Farley and, um, Adam Sandler and, you know, that whole kind of class of SNL was hugely impactful to me. David Tell was the first stand-up comedian that I ever saw who just like floored me. Uh, Conan O'Brien was just showed me that goofiness could be cool too. Um, and you know what? Well, the first time I saw improv comedy was in the late nineties at a place in New York city called Chicago city limits. Um, went with like a class, like our drama class took a little trip out there. And that, that trip to Chicago city limits to see improv and to see what was possible made up on the spot, just like, I mean, it blew a hole into my head <laughs> that I was like, holy cow, these people are the most impressive people I've ever seen in my life. And I just, I thought it would be such a dream to be able to learn this special skills that these people have, you know, like whether it's being a one person up on stage and crafting amazing bits or being part of an ensemble and doing improv or sketch. I mean, it just always seemed like a superpower to me. So yeah, I mean, those are, those are definitely, I think they, again, I, I'm, I'm guessing as I say it, like I had sketch influences, I had stand up influences and I had improv influences. Dan, what's the one dish from your mother you will still continue to try to master until it's just perfect. My mom makes this rice, this Persian rice that is so unbelievably flavorful that has ground meat and chopped up cabbage and big cumin seeds. And I don't know what else. And frankly, I don't want to learn how to make it because I like the fact that she's the only one who's got the secret. And it gives me something to look forward to whenever I go to New York, because I know that she's going to make it for me. So I'd rather not be able to make it at home. What makes you laugh? What makes me laugh? Honestly, the, the laughs that I have with my younger brother, like are probably the best laughs that I ever have just because 
we are pretty psychic with each other and we know what each other is always thinking. And usually, and we have such messed up sensitive humor that we can find comedy anywhere. So it'll be something that happens with my brother in a super serious situation, like at a funeral, <laughs> something like that, that will just bring me to my knees. Like those are my favorite kinds of laughs is when it's something, when there's something really awfully sad going on and your nerves are just so frayed that I think as much as you can just like cry on a dime, you can laugh on a dime too. And those laughs to me are the best laughs in the world. During quarantine, what movie or show were you watching with your parents that had the sex scene? And did your parents do a play-by-play or uh, they're doing it wrong? So it wasn't a movie. It was a show. It was Homeland. And I was the one who introduced them to it. I was like, you guys are going to love this show. And then we got to this just horrific sex scene where, you know, um, Carrie is just being plowed uh, just into a wall and just like making ungodly noises. And I'm sitting there with my parents watching this. And they were, if, if my dad had said something, that would have been great to break the ice. But no, it was just completely silent in this room. I happened to be recording the moment on my phone and I threw it up on Twitter. And I think it became the most viral video of COVID. It, as of today, I think it has 8.1 million views. What's your restaurant pet peeve? Ooh. So my new restaurant pet peeve that I'm trying to workshop is I don't like it when I'm being read the specials and not given the prices for them. No, I know you, Dan. That's why I'm miserable at all restaurants now. Just tell me a price. Yeah, honestly, screw you, okay? You, we need to know, don't make us guess. Don't make us have to hope that it's going to fall between a price range. I, I went to Balthazar, which is, to me, the gold standard of service in a restaurant are Keith McNally's restaurants in New York. There's Balthazar, Pastiz, Mineta Tavern, Morandi. And they started saying the specials and giving the prices after every dish. To which I was like, why doesn't everyone do that? Why does every other restaurant make us, put us in the weird position to either A, you know, um, just go with the flow and God knows how much they're going to fucking charge you for the sea bass or B make you, f- make you seem like a cheapo. Cause you're like, wait, uh, wait, so how much is that ribeye? You know, I hate that. Also, I also don't like when menus have an MP market price next to a dish. Yeah. Everything is the market price. Every single item on your menu has a market price. Okay. Why, why does the lobster, why does that market price have to be completely hidden? We can never know what the market price is of the lobster. Is lobster suddenly like Bitcoin where it's, it just goes up and down like crazy? No, it's a pretty fucking shelf stable price. (laughs) So enough with the MPs. Give me what the price is. How about your death row meal? My death row meal is a duck confit on top of frisee with French fries. Duck frites, baby. Whatever fat the prison has on hand, if they have duck fat, fantastic. Now, are the fries cooked in the duck fat? I mean, because they can use the fat from the duck confit. They can. And I'm going to tell the warden, I'm going to be like, I wanted to save you money on my way out. I don't want you to buy separate oil. Let's render the duck fat. 
and then let's you know cook the fries in that how have you changed from your first role in av club as saddam to today um wow was that my first role that's hilarious i i totally forgot about that how have i changed i feel like the change that most actors make when they go from not being able to do anything to being able to to do more is that i only uh, i'm not as thirsty to get roles so i'm not just like trying to give them what they want i always now i always try to give it my own spin and do something weird and different and if they like it great and if they don't that's fine too cuz the truth of the matter is i wouldn't want to do a role unless i could do it in my own weird way dan how has hollywood changed for the better and the worse since you got there for the better and the worse is you know look the better and the worse are the same exact thing the better is that there's way more networks now and there's way more opportunities out there so it's almost like difficult to not be working if you really want to the worst is that everything has been spread apart and everyone's getting paid a lot less money so uh you can't like make it off of one show anymore like it used to be like you uh you know it's it's not like uh as lucrative as it used to be what's your favorite moment the best moment from you and your late brother my best moment from my brother i will tell you when i so i was a very good piano player and i was enrolled in this i was like 15 and i was enrolled in this piano academy thing and every year they did a concert at carnegie hall so it was time for the carnegie hall concert and i was playing the hungarian rhapsody by franz list which is a really hard song and i was severely underprepared but i was like i know how this is gonna go because I know what happens with me. I get on stages and suddenly something happens. I get possessed and good things happen and, and it all is going to work out. Well, that did not happen this night. <laughs> <laughs> I got on stage and in front of like hundreds of people at Carnegie Hall, I just ate it. Um, I clearly messed up and it just was... The level of talent there was so good and it was really, really awful. And I remember that night, I just wanted to go home. And that night, I remember I slept at my brother's room for some reason. I was sleeping in his room with him. I think it's because he knew how bummed I was. He was like, come sleep, sleep in my room with me. And he, he was telling me that I could be a professional piano player he's like i saw something in you tonight you if you really want to do it and it was so clear that i messed up that night but he made me really believe that actually if i wanted to i could be a professional piano player and then look you know back then i mean looking back on that i'm like that is the nicest thing that anyone could do uh to kind of look at a 15 year old kid and build him up after having just bombed in front, in front of a, you know, in front of the biggest stage in the world. Um, and I just always look back at that as like, that's, you know, I wish I could be that nice. I'm not, I'm definitely not that nice of a brother to my younger brother, but um, that was probably the nicest uh, memory that I have of him, of him telling me that I could be a professional piano player and making me believe it after having an awful, awful uh, show. Uh, but I remember how nice that made me feel. Dan Adut, incredible book. 
Undercooked, How I Let Food Become My Life Navigator, and How Maybe That's a Dumb Way to Live joins us beyond the mic for one big question. What are the things you cherish from your parents and you will miss the most when they are gone? I think that, interesting, like the thing I cherish the most is their work ethic and their appreciation for this country and what this country has given them. But their work ethic is really, really impressive. My dad would wake up every morning at like 6.30 to go to work no matter what. And my mom, after my brother died, my mom decided to become a gemologist uh, to pass her time, basically, to pass the time and became a professional and started to buy and sell jewelry. Um, So their work ethic is really impressive. And I think what I'm going to miss most when they're gone is the stuff that drives me crazy now, like the nagging and the what do you you know, when are you going to get on with your life and when are you going to get married and when are you going to this and that? Like that stuff that drives me crazy. I think once that's gone, it's going to be really, that's going to be a tough void to fill. When are you going to give me a grandchild? Yeah. Don't give Dan a dude a clam has two mortar and pestles and has eight food off the floor. He wants you to read undercooked how I let food become my life navigator and how maybe that's a dumb way to live. Dan, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. That was a wonderful summary. I appreciate it. Uh, and yeah, no, thanks for, thanks for always having a microphone open to me. I don't even know if you can say, you're having your microphone open to me. It sounds a little dirty, but you know what I mean. And that my friends is beyond the mic. 